0: Beyond Goodbye is a podcast that explores death, dying, and coping with loss, and therefore contains material not suitable for all audiences. So, listener discretion is advised. When you lose something, part of you dies, and there is some regret. But eventually, you have to say goodbye to that life and take on a new life. Part of you dies, and part of you is reborn. The author is unknown. Uh, but I had heard that I believe it was a National Geographic episode and the man who said this went blind late in life and losing his sight caused him to stop stop living he was scared and really didn't know how he could manage not seeing how his life would go but then his brain did something pretty incredible and it took over And created new pathways for him to function in his new normal now this man was taking the host of the show on a tour and they were going up a mountain it was a live volcano and us as viewers did not know he was blind until they got to the top of this mountain our brains are amazing they find and build ways for us to function when trauma has made it its way into our lives today we will hear about how our brain finds us new ways to survive loss and dr. Mary Frances O'Connor is here to tell us just how this is episode 5 titled grief and the brain a scientific approach <laughs> Welcome to Beyond Goodbye. This is Angela and I am your host. Well, as promised, today's episode features Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, a neuroscientist and psychologist who directs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab at the University of Arizona, and is the author of a favorite book of mine titled The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. Dr. O'Connor has graciously agreed to share her research and experience on grieving and the brain with our listeners. Welcome and thank you, Dr. O'Connor, for speaking with us today.
1: Oh, it's so lovely to be here, Angela. Call me Mary Frances if you want to. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) Uh, So I really like your book. Um, I go back to it often and I have shared portions of your book on a couple of our shows. I find it to be for someone who's a not scientifically trained. I find it to be an easy read for me. I can follow along and I understand, you know, what you're saying. Um so I'm curious to know about well more about why you chose this field of study. I you know, because I'm a psychologist,
1: I think I'm aware that we're not always clear on our motivations. <laughs> so I will tell you what I think. <laughs> um you know it's really kind of a combination for me i i have always been fascinated by the brain from the first you know time i took a class that talked about it um and and because you know it's such a black box for us it's mm-hmm. It's how does it, how does the brain understand a a relationship, right? That seems really complex. And how can that turn into neurons firing? And so, you know, I felt really fortunate to get a chance to, to study the brain and, and to study grief within the brain. And because of that, I'm hopeful that the lens that I take Um, thinking about grief from the perspective of the brain, maybe gives us some new ideas that we hadn't necessarily applied to grief before. But of course, there's sort of a a more personal motivation as well, which is that, um, you know, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was uh, in what we now call middle school. Um, And she she was very, very sick and was sick for a long time. And and then she passed away when I was um, in my early 20s. And I mm-hmm. think that it wasn't so much because I was trying to figure out my own grief, but rather I felt really comfortable with people who were grieving. Uh, and so it made it easier for me to, to have long conversations with them and let them cry if they needed to. And then maybe a unique way of understanding how to map what they were telling me onto these brain images that I was seeing, right? So Mm -hmm. I think probably kind of a
0: combination of reasons. That's interesting. Um, I, well, I love science and I love how the brain works as well. And it's funny you say that about you being younger because I I wish I had it still. I somehow, my mom probably tossed it at some point, but I had, uh, was fascinated with autism, Yeah, and where in the brain and how it functioned. So I had a little journal and I had drawn the brain and highlighted an area in the brain where I thought it, it lived and talked about how I was going to find a cure. You know, I didn't know much. I mean, I wasn't even a teenager, I don't think, but the brain has always fascinated me. Uh, We just know so little about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's, that's interesting. My mom also passed away a couple of years before my kids of, she had Ball bar ALS that came on oh suddenly. Yeah. And that was 8 months and it was a horrible disease to watch her wild. suffer through and then yeah. pass away. Um in in your book you talk about virtual maps of that the brain creates. So could you describe that a little bit more for us and help us understand that a little bit? I I mean, I, I followed along but it would just be nice to hear. Well, my listeners didn't know about it. I didn't share that part, so. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, I think it starts with the idea that our loved ones are as important to our survival as food and water, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I know that you had an attachment relationship because you survived to adulthood, right? Right. We, We absolutely must have attachment relationships. And so in the same way that we might have a map in our brain, if I say, you know, what are you going to have for dinner tonight? You kind of know where you're going to go, how you're going to get that uh, food. And and you have a plan, right? You've probably been grocery shopping and so forth. And the brain devotes effort and energy to figuring out how you're going to eat. I think that similarly with our living loved ones, we keep a map in the brain of sort of if i ask you you know how would you get to your best friend right now if they had an emergency you probably have some idea of like where they probably would be or for your listeners their kids or their their spouse or parent we have a sense of where they are how we would get to them we literally have a a map of the world and where they are in the world and when we will see them next the really really difficult thing i think about the death of a loved one is that when a loved one is alive, we have a solution for if they're not in our presence, right? If they're not in our presence, it means we should go get them. That's the simple solution. But when a loved one has died, we still have that map. And the problem is the person doesn't exist on the map. There is no map anymore. And so the brain has to understand it's not that they're lost, It's not just that I can't find them on the map. It's that there is no map anymore. And that I think is literally mind boggling. Yeah. And so we end up doing all sorts of things and feeling slightly crazy. I think like we still pick up the phone to text them or, you know, someone told me about um, was in the grocery store and was um, looking at the birthday cards and was like, oh, this would be a great card for dad next year. And then, of course, remember, I, I can't, I will never send a card to dad again. So I think by thinking about the idea that your brain really still has that person, that loved one incorporated somewhere, somewhere mm-hmm. in the world, they are there for me, while also knowing the reality that that can't possibly be true, means that every time you realize, oh, there is no map that it's distressing, it's upsetting, it's yeah. it's saddening. And, and that takes a long time for the brain to update its understanding um, to really be able to predict their absence more than their
0: presence. Yeah, that's interesting because I know my kids aren't here, yeah. but just, and it's been just been two years now, September 12th was two years. But last week I at work reached for my cell phone to text my daughter for like a second, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm still doing this after two years. I mean, it was, it was strange to me because I know she's not there, you know? Yeah. that's. But there
1: is a way in which, you know, I call it the gone, but also everlasting theory. You know, we think of our brain as being one system, right? Mm -hmm. But you can have different streams of information in your brain. And one stream is the memory system, right? You know, the reality, Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we have this attachment neurobiology where when we form a bond with that person, you know, when we fall in love with our baby or we fall in love with with the person who becomes our spouse, that comes with this belief, you will always be there for me and I will always be there for you. Mm -hmm. And that always doesn't change when the person dies. So these two systems are kind of conflicting. Yeah. And that leads us to doing what feels
0: strange sometimes. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, We have, so some of our listeners have, they've lost, you know, siblings or children. I, I of course, lost my children and my mom, but my children had children and they're young. So I was curious to know if in some of your research, does the brain map similarly? I mean, is it? Or, you know, because their child brains aren't really fully developed until what they're saying, right. what, the end of late 20s now. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that process, if you think it is the similar. I think there are, of course,
1: differences. As you say, a child's brain is not developed in the same way. But what's interesting is our capacity to understand separation happens from the very beginning right so a child may not understand the abstract idea of death right that they're never coming back or or how that happened or why but we are very innately able to understand this person isn't here and i need this person i want this person to be Mm -hmm. here and so i think it is very clear from research that children do grieve It's also clear that they are resilient in a way that human that human beings just are that adults are resilient. Mm -hmm. Um, And also that they need support that they need to figure out what are all these feelings I'm having and why do I feel angry or why do I feel guilty.
0: Um,
1: So I am not an expert on on child psychology. I have to be honest. But I think we know more and more about how to support them and that supported grief is resilience, right? That that gives that if they have the time and space to kind of understand what's happening and also to create a life for themselves that is meaningful,
0: mm-hmm.
1: then then they take away important lessons from a loss.
0: Yeah, my my daughter's <clears throat> youngest, he's just turned seven. Yeah, But he really struggles with it. However, we've had him in counseling since this all happened. He goes, I believe Mm -hmm. weekly still, but he, now that he's able to put some words to it, we're seeing a little bit of a change in how he's handling the grief. You know, he's able to talk about it more now, you know, saying that, you know, I really miss my mom or I wish she was here in real life. And, but he also knows that she's not there. So we're not watching him not get up and not eat anymore. And so it's been, that's been helpful, but, um, the counseling has been helpful, but it's interesting to know, you know, the mapping, Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes total sense to me. It makes total sense. I think you gave an example too, in your book on, bumping into a table, you know, at night when you're coming around, I thought that was a great example to explain it. Um, And, and it made sense, you know, to me. Yeah. Um, Something else that you wrote um, caught my interest. And this one, I, I struggled a tiny bit with was the, the difference between complicated grief and and grief, or the definition of complicated grief, could you go into that just a little bit? Yeah. I, I think my dad suffers from complicated grief, but yeah. I'm not a psychologist, so you know, right. I was, and and I would never say that he is now, but it sounds similar to what he's experiencing, and I was just curious to yeah. know a little bit more about that. Yeah
1: even since I wrote the book, the the psychology community has really landed on this term prolonged grief. So I I try to remember to use that term now, but we mean essentially the same thing as the term complicated grief. Um, And what it means is that, you know, for most people, when a loved one dies, we have this really strong reaction, this grief reaction. And that for the vast majority of us, we do see change over time, right? The, the waves of grief, the waves of grief become less intense or less frequent. It's not a linear change, right? Mm -hmm, Like some days are better than others. Some months are better than others. The anniversary is terrible, you know, Mm -hmm. but over time in general, we have a change, even if that change is just grief starts to feel familiar and you start to know oh that's what this is and maybe learn a little bit how to comfort yourself or how to reach out right in those moments um instead of being utterly bewildered by them Mm -hmm. and so that's the typical course of grieving that we have change change over time but there is this very small group of people and we think it's probably less than 1 in 10 bereaved people mm. who don't really show a change over time and so after a year after 2 years their grief still looks very much like the death just happened and those are the people of course that we're most concerned about in in research we're most concerned about Um, This group of people who still feel life is just meaningless or they feel completely numb or they feel very bitter um, about the loss and it keeps them from having, you know, social interactions, right? Mm Because they just feel like you couldn't possibly understand and it's not fair that you didn't lose someone, right? So there's a few different flavors, so to speak, of Mm -hmm. prolonged grief. But it really is about whether a person is able to make changes in their life that accepts the reality that this person is gone and still tries to restore, you know, meaningful activities and meaningful relationships around the fact that that person is gone.
0: So we talked about that in the last episode on <clears throat> how to live a meaningful life after loss. And, you know, it's hard. To do that, I I think about um how often I will it well, reading what you had written really made me kind of reflect a little bit about who am I saying no to that's been asking me to go and do something. And it's mainly because I just I'm sitting there thinking about my kids and I'm like, eh, I don't feel like going out, you know? Yeah. And I haven't allowed myself to do some of those things. I've gotten better, but yeah. um kind of reading what you were talking about, I think that a lot of people are in that boat. A lot of people who are grieving right now can really relate to, it's very difficult to find something meaningful because then you also have some guilt feelings a little bit about, geez, should I be even this happy today? I mean, you know, and my, my son was on, my youngest son was on the podcast with me last week. And, and he was saying, you know, I don't think that people who pass away want us to sit here and not be happy. Right. You know, and he's like, we're all going to die. So I am yeah. allowing myself to be happy. And I thought that was oh, so that wise. was great. Yeah, yeah, it is. But it's, you know, it's hard to do. And I think it, we it have to remind to ourselves do. That's to right. do that. And be patient, right?
1: Uh, it is going to be harder initially. And the change over time that you mentioned right then, mm-hmm. um, it comes slowly. And And that's okay. Right. This is a very unique and special time in your life when you are making sense of what loss is Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's okay to take time to do that.
0: Yeah. I like that you said special. I think some people would disagree (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) who are, who are right in the middle, you know, in the, in the center of it, like haven't processed a lot yet, but I think, yes, it's special. It's a special time
1: i guess i mean special in the sense of unique right so i think what's interesting and and maybe relates a little bit to what you were saying is that you know in the first however long depends on the person months year couple of years there's a very specific you know grief feels a particular way and there comes a time in one's life which you can't imagine yet if you're in the middle of it when It doesn't feel the same way. And there's a tiny bit of grief over that too, Mm -hmm. right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm not in the middle of it anymore and, and that's okay. That is the normal, the typical trajectory, but I think it also makes it okay that this is a unique time when you are in the middle of it and to just know that it's okay to be there right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Give yourself permission. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the other thing you, when well, you wrote a lot of things, but the other <laughs> thing that stuck out to me as well, what was the five stages of grief? Mm-hmm. Um, and you had written that this is an outdated idea, which of course it would be because science is always teaching us something new all the time. I mean, last week, probably something new popped up. Yeah. So anything that we've learned or studied or thought was and maybe it was back then, the way to do it is no longer the way we would do something now. And, but even after losing my kids and my mom, I've still had people saying, oh, you're going through the stages, the five stages. And I looked at that a little bit, even when people would say that before I had had read your book and it troubled me a tiny bit because I thought, well, I don't know that I am like, for example, the bargaining. I don't believe I've done it. I did any bargaining, um, denial. I don't know. What does that look like? Because I wasn't denying that they had been dead or died or murdered, but it was surreal. I mean, you know, and so I thought that I was like, oh good. Somebody is saying that, yeah, that's, that's an outdated version. And so I wanted to hear more about that. And I would like you to share that with the listeners too, because I'm sure people are hearing it all the time about their journey.
1: Yeah you know, those stages that were developed by Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she was a really remarkable woman. But of course, she published those in 1969, right? Right. Think how far science has come since 1969. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But she did the right thing that a scientist should do at the beginning was she observed and she wrote down what people told her they were experiencing. And it is true that I mean, one of her great contributions, I think, was the idea that grief isn't just sadness, right? Grief is anger. Grief is anxiety. Grief is depression. Grief is, um, uh, you know, yearning and and all these other things and accepting, right? Mm -hmm. Grief is all of those things. And that was very novel at the time. What I think came out of that was that she was not doing longitudinal studies, right? Mm -hmm. She wasn't looking at the same person over many months and saying, oh, this is the way that their grief has changed. She was describing and not prescribing, right? Right. What should look like but unfortunately because i think people have had so little information to use i think those stages have remained something we kind of hold on to as sort of well this is the information that we have right
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but
1: what we know from from real longitudinal studies now um with much larger samples right um is that typically there is this this change over time where people are more often accepting of the reality of the loss. And, and over time, people tend to yearn for the person less intensely or less frequently. Yeah. But of course, it's not linear. Like I just said, right? right. Like at the anniversary or at holidays, it's going to feel worse. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with your grieving, even though you're having a wave of grief,
0: Right? you know? Because right.
1: grief is just going to happen. It's just right. a human emotion, like getting upset or getting anxious or getting and so I think that's the part that's been damaging when we assume that everyone will do it the same way and that there will be some end point,
0: which we know is just not really people's
1: experience.
0: Yeah. I don't, there's never an end point. I don't believe. No. I don't believe there will be. <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I could pick your brain for hours. <laughs> but I know that uh, we don't have that sort of time. So I did want to mention one last thing Um, you had written near the end of the book, you'd said, and I agree with this a hundred percent. You wrote how um, learning is not gained through advice. And that's, I think that's important to say, because I don't know about you, but I've had people in my past, they'll give me some advice, and then they'll be usually like a partner. And then they'll get mad that I didn't do it and tell me I didn't learn, you know, didn't you learn anything? I told you, well, no, that's, that isn't learning, but you, you, yeah, I I love that you put that. And one of the things about the podcast is the goal is not to give advice, but to provide some tools, some real life experiences from people are going through loss at the different stages that they might be at and the different types of loss that there are um, so that those who are grieving, who will grieve because we're all going to lose somebody (laughs) that they maybe have these things or find them helpful in that journey. So I think
1: what you're doing is so important. It's opening the conversation, right?
0: So if you can say,
1: you know, I was listening to this podcast the other day and she said this thing, have you ever experienced that? I'm not sure if I have, or this totally spoke to me. Does that? does that ring true for you? I Mm -hmm. think of it as sort of like, it's not advice. It's like lending you my glasses, right? Like this is how I see the world. It may bring some things into focus that you hadn't noticed before, but they're still my glasses, right? They're still going to fit me best. Um, but the ability to sort of talk about it is what's so critical.
0: Mm -hmm. I agree. And it's why we started this, not enough conversation around it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is all the time we have for today. A big thank you to you, Dr. O'Connor, Mary Mm -hmm. Francis, for agreeing to come onto our podcast. Um, It will be one month since we've been live in about two days. So it's not that we're pretty young. Um, I know I very much enjoyed hearing from you and um, I'm sure that our listeners have as well. Next week, we will talk about forgiveness. This is a tough one for some of us. Hey there, listeners. Thank you for dropping by and listening to my interview with Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. If you are liking what you hear on Beyond Goodbye, please follow us on your favorite podcast listening site. And also, we want to hear from you. And in show notes, you will find uh, our contact information. And if there is a show or something you'd like us to touch on in the future, please drop us a line. Thanks all. Bye.